before we start the podcast, just want to say thanks very much because we've hit 100,000 unique downloads. We've done that in about six months with no paid advertising, no backing really. So I think that's pretty good. Uh, thanks very much. Also, just to say there are a few Popular Front t-shirts left in the shop. If you want one, be quick. They're selling out quite fast. Get them at popularfront.bigcartel.com. But yeah, 100,000 downloads, really good. Thanks very much. This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Philip Smythe. He's an analyst that focuses on Shia militancy and he's going to be talking about the Hasht al-Shabi in Iraq, the militia also known as the Popular Mobilization Units, also known as the Popular Mobilization Forces, also known as the quote-unquote Shia militias. Philip's going to be talking to us about their backing from Iran and how they became a bit of a militant Trojan horse inside Iraq. To keep Popular Front going, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. This episode is sponsored by thedefensepost.com. Um, maybe you can explain who are the Hasht al-Shabi, who are the PMU, the Popular Mobilization Units, because often people use that term as if it's this one cohesive movement, but I know that's not quite true. Can, can you explain it for us? Of course. Uh, Al-Hasht al-Shabi, or the Popular Mobilization Units, or forces, um, it's an umbrella grouping that was given official sanction by uh, the Iraqi government in June 2014, uh, and technically, the, the narrative that's been presented is that they were a response to the Islamic State's uh, conquest of Mosul and that they were uh, created due to a fatwa issued by, or I should say, a, a statement of jihad or defensive jihad launched by uh, the most grand ayatollah in the Twelver Shia realm, uh, which is Ayatollah Sistani, um, who's you know, considering the, considered kind of the leading marja. Uh, so he's kind of the source of emulation for many, many Shia. Um, and uh, I mean, I'll, I'll have to say this, that's not necessarily true. Um, I, I mean, the, the groups that came to form al-Hashd al-Shabi, um, a, a lot of them were already, you know, fully formed militia groups that were, and the idea behind this of having kind of a quasi-conglomeration with, you know, official Iraqi government recognition had been something floated around by a lot of Iranian-controlled groups Actually, ever since 2013, where uh, this had been proposed by uh, some parliamentarians, oh, well, you know, we should come up with a popular mobilization of sorts to defend Shia neighborhoods from, you know, Sunni groups that were attacking them. Um, but this has been kind of a thing that was just uh, processed for a while. But, you know, what exactly is al-Hashr al-Shabi? Um, it's this conglomeration of a number of different groups. And when I say conglomeration, I don't want people to think that it's this... Uh, extremely cohesive group that is just under one, uh, uh, kind of under one leadership. There are over 50 organizations that are within it, uh, and I, I should say there are over, I mean, over 50 different uh, brigades and sub-brigades. Uh, what's happened is you'll have some groups that will control X number of brigades, and that's kind of their little subsection. So there's, uh, think about it this way, there's one group called Asayib Ahl al-Haq, um, Asayib Ahl al-Haq is an Iranian-controlled, uh, one-time splinter of Muqtada Sadr's uh, Mahdi army, uh, and now they are kind of fully 
uh, with the Iranians, and they've been sending guys over to Syria. Uh, they've been fighting in Iraq. They try to control uh, different villages and different areas there. They're very, very powerful militia, but they have three brigades uh, under al Hashal Shabi. Uh, the same thing goes with a group called Qatab Hezbollah. Qatab Hezbollah is on the U.S. terrorism list. Uh, they're responsible for a lot of, of really, really uh, advanced attacks on, uh, let's just take U.S. forces, on British forces. Same thing goes with the Saibat al-Hawk. Um, and they, too, control uh, three different uh, brigades within within that apparatus. You have groups like the Badr Organization. The Badr Organization probably has the largest number of uh, of brigades under al-Hashal Shabi. I think it's it's close to 20. I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, it's a little less than 20. Uh, and they have a lot of influence over some of the other brigades. Um, now, to or there's an argument that's been said where uh, you would kind of argue that um, many of them are all Shia militias. Yes, it's not all Shia militias. However, Shia groups heavily dominate uh, uh, kind of the activities that were going on there. Uh, and if you think about it uh, in this context, there are other groups. There's one Assyrian Christian group uh, called the Nineveh Plains Unit, uh, or Nineveh Plains Forces, uh, that's technically under al-Hashal Shabi's control under, I believe, their uh, 30th Brigade. Uh, but it's not necessarily under the control of the Iranians, even though it's paired up with a lot of Iranian-controlled Sunni groups uh, and uh, a Shia Shabak organization, um, which is also, you know, also calls itself, you know, the Nineveh Plains uh, um, uh, forces. Um, so you have kind of weird things that are that are like that. You have some Sunni tribal units that are also thrown into uh, different uh, different brigades that are there. Sure. Okay. So, so it's this umbrella basically for all these different groups. But why was it created? Why did, why did the Iraqi government decide? Right, we need this umbrella. We need the hashtag Shabi and put it all together. Well, I think. I mean, there's a few different reasons. I mean, it's not just one solid one. Um, one. I mean, if we're looking at the response to, uh, like I went into before, uh, what happened at the Battle of Mosul when when the Islamic State took it with only a couple hundred fighters, and then you had the Iraqi army. Uh, and you had uh, police forces, kind of federal police forces and whatnot, pulling out of the city. Um, there was a response in the street with, oh, oh no, um, who's defending the other sections of Iraq now um, if they can't even pull that off? We need to mobilize very quickly. And of course, you know, a lot of the Iranian-backed uh, Shia militias were very, very smart uh, to capitalize on this. And they had already kind of seen the writing on the wall anyway. Uh, where they could take full advantage of it. They were already recruiting a lot of people for Syria, so they already had a recruitment network that was set up uh, and available. Um, they also had TV networks, and they had you know, different social media networks to recruit people. So they, they already understood how to get this all together. Um, so a lot of them were pushing for this. You know, they wanted the official recognition to have kind of their, their armed sections uh, so that you know, in, in many ways they wouldn't be uh, uh, disassembled. Um, after any conflict, and they could use this also to grow their forces and grow their influence. Uh, so you had it on that end. Um, you have other sections too. I mean, I don't want people to think it's completely and totally, you know, 1,000% under the control of the Iranians. For the most part, it is. Um, but there are other groups within the Hashtal Shabi that are uh, controlled, by, uh, controlled by people like Ayatollah Sistani. I mentioned Sistani before, um, and Sistani uh, does not have the best relationship with the Iranians. Uh, he's more of an, I guess people have termed him an Iraqi nationalist, and I guess that works for the time being. Um, and he had uh, a number of groups under his control. Uh, one of the largest ones was Firqat al-Abbas al-Qataliya, or the Abbas Combat Division. Uh, he had another one, Liwa Ali al-Akbar, 
so that's the, the Alil Akbar uh, Brigade. Um, so groups like that are also within al-Hashtal Shabi's uh, command structure, but just because you know you have these Iranian-backed guys, these Iranian-controlled individuals who are controlling it for the most part, um, there's a hell of a lot of independence that's still exerted by you know some of these other groups, like these Sistanist uh, groups, because they're not going to listen to the Iranians. They're going to do their own thing. They're going to cooperate more with uh, more friendly sections of the Iraqi army or uh, other security apparatuses within the country. Uh, and that's generally how they've, they've operated. Uh, you also have a, a group called Soil Salam. I actually have a Soil Salam flag on my, on my office wall that I'm looking at as I'm, I'm doing this with you. Um, Soil Salam is under Muqtada Sadr's control. Think of it as, as a successor group uh, to his uh, organization, which is called Jaish al-Mahdi, or the Mahdi Army, uh, which existed during the American occupation. And, you know, they were a pretty brutal group and also rather fractious. A number of the... Uh, uh, the groups under al-Hashd al-Shabi are actually uh, splinters from Muqtada Sadr that came under Iranian control, um, or at least the Iranians are sponsoring the creation of these splinter groups. Now Sistani has kind of played, now he's, he's more of a kingmaker within Iraq, uh, given his win during the elections, the 2018 parliamentary elections. And uh, on top of that, Sarai al-Salam is a rather uh, powerful organization, uh, and they control uh, a lot of the area around Samra, uh, which is an important shrine city to the north of Baghdad. Shrine, shrine city for uh, for Shias, right? Yes, for Shia, for the Twelver Shia. I mean, it's a mixed population generally in in the area, but you know, Samra itself uh, is you know a very very big city with the Shia. So you've got thousands of these fighters, many of them Iranian-backed. To me, it sounds like for Iraq to say, yeah, yeah, come in and start fighting. Other than, you know, the usefulness of them fighting ISIS, it sounds like a really bad idea to have that much Iranian influence in your country. Now, I know you said they're not all, you know, Iran back, but the vast majority are. Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about why that is and how that network works. Sure. Um, I mean, this, this has been a project by the Iranians, which has gone all the way back to the Islamic Revolution in Iran, uh, starting in 1979, uh, if not even before then. Uh, when you had groups like the Dawah movement, uh, which Khomeini and a lot of these other major uh, Shia clerics who were more political uh, were part of. Uh, and so what happened was this. Initially, back in the 1980s, uh, officially more in, the in 1982, there was a group that was started called uh, Felak Badr, uh, or the, the, the Badr Corps. Uh, eventually developed into the Badr Corps, uh, which the Iranians thought could, they could use as, and this is interesting because it, it, it mirrors a lot of how Hashd al-Shabi is now, um, it could be kind of an umbrella group, an armed umbrella section uh, to their uh, Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, which you know, had the more political end of it. Um, but they could use that group to fight Saddam Hussein, uh, and they could pull people in and, and kind of have uh, launch different, what we would call... Uh, essentially terrorist actions, you know, if we're talking about political violence against uh, civilian leaders. Uh, they were doing stuff like that. They were also doing insurgent attacks um, against Saddam Hussein's regime um, and, you know, fighting on and off for whenever the, or the Iranians generally wanted them to do so. So, I mean, that's kind of the start of that network. You had other groups that eventually, uh, groups and individuals that kind of splintered off of even Badr. Uh, it didn't mean that they were out of Iran's control, but maybe they didn't like the leadership of Badr and they wanted to do their own thing. Uh, you kind of had that same thing with, with Muqtada Sadr, where he had a lot of individuals who were powerful leaders within his network that splintered off, and the Iranians tried to get their hands in there and control as many of those people as possible using uh, money and different other in forms of influence. Um, 
So they've tried to build their network uh, using splinter groups and uh, kind of this complex array of different networks of individuals, uh, clerical leaders, military leaders, and whatnot. Uh, and this has been kind of a, a decades-long uh, process, many decades-long process for them to build the influence on the ground. But how they've modeled these groups is essentially off of the Lebanese Hezbollah model. So Lebanese Hezbollah is under the control of the Iranians. and. Um, in general, it's a group that will have political influence. They go into the election, uh, the electoral process, generally speaking. Um, they will try to win different elections, but meanwhile, they'll maintain their own militias that will do their own kind of armed activity to increase the group's presence and, uh, and control, uh, and also do Iran's bidding. So some of these groups, when the Iranians uh, you know, uh, called on them, they would say, hey, you know, around 2012, 2013, we need fighters to go to Syria to back up our guy Bashar al-Assad. Of course, they didn't say that. Uh, they said instead, we are defending the shrine of Sayyidah Zainab, which is in southern Damascus, uh, from attacks by Sunni extremists, uh, and, you know, that are, that are U.S. influenced. They would always use this line. Um, so we need fighters to go there. So, of course, they'll, they'll engage in transnational activities. Uh, just because they're an Iraqi political group and, and claiming that they're Iraqi nationalists uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're doing that. Um, often they're, they're doing the goals that the Iranians have set for them. Um, but you have a number of these different groups that are out there that, that kind of fall under Iran's control. Uh, and Iran often will exert control using a variety of different means. But in general, even though it looks very, very fractious, uh, I think it falls into the Iranian strategy for how they can gain better control within Iraq. You know, you don't want to lose a guy just because he's angry with his former commander. You know, that guy might have, you know, another 150 to 300 guys, 200 guys, whatever, uh, under his command. Well, hey, just give him another group. Give him some funding. Let's see how loyal he is to Tehran, um, and let's see how many guys he can get for whatever cause we're pushing for. And that's kind of how they've done it. There's an ideological component to this as well. Uh, I mentioned that this is occurred since the start of the Islamic Revolution. Um, these groups uh, generally adhere to, and I say generally, I mean for the most part, uh, they, they will claim to adhere to what's called absolute wilayat al-faqih. Uh, in Arabic, that's kind of guardianship of the jurisprudence. Uh, and that's the belief that the supreme leader in Iran uh, is essentially the, the I guess the, the closest guy to Imam al-Mahdi, and Shia believe that Imam al-Mahdi will eventually return. Um, and what happens is when Khomeini, who was the leader of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, when he was the leader of the uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran, um, they essentially believe that they are in the, on the slow road, the slow process to creating an imamate. You know, they called Khomeini the imam, just like they call the current supreme leader, uh, you know, Imam Khamenei. Um, they believe in kind of an absolute loyalty of sorts to him and to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is, I don't want to call it a Praetorian Guard for the Iranians, but in, in some respects it is. Um, it, it's essentially the protector and the pusher of the Islamic Revolution um, worldwide. You know, what goals do they want? Okay, IRGC will help push that. And IRGC has its own you know, sea arm and its own land arm, and uh, the Quds Force, which is under the command of Qasem Soleimani, um, is essentially the, the organizer and controller of a lot of these other groups in Iraq, you know, Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, some of the smaller groups in Bahrain. Um, so they will 
you know, try to pull the strings and control them as best they can so that they're formed around this revolutionary ideological goal of extending uh, influence across the region. Um, I think some people get stuck up in, you know, a lot of the, the talk about how, you know, well, it's pushing Iranian nationalism. Um, if we look back at Khomeini's writings, his speeches, um, he was not a big fan of Iranian national, but nationalism, but he would use nationalistic uh, terms, tones, and phrases to get people to fight. I mean, the guy was not stupid. Yes, he was not pushing for a nationalistic goal in, in the sense of Iran needs to be the, the overarching kind of power. He understood that for the Islamic revolution to work, you needed to take control of a state. That state happened to be Iran. Um, but he wanted to push for a transnational ummah under what was essentially his control. You know, under under Khomeinist control, and now Khamenei is is pushing for the same thing. I mean, this is why there are groups that are supported, um, you know, in the Palestinian territories like Hamas. Sometimes it's a fractious uh, level of control, or Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, which had more of an ideological link to the Iranians for many years. Um, there was a new group called the Sabrin, which were Shia converts in uh, the Palestinian areas that that you know uh, adhered to absolute wilayat al faqi and and their loyalty to. Uh, the supreme leader in Iran. So this is generally how that that structure has kind of worked. So he's he's basically trying to create his own like a Shia Ummah. Um, in a way. So here's here's a better way of thinking of it. Um, when I say it's transnational, you're talking about Muslim, uh, transnational, but it's also um, uh, pan-Islamic in in a way. Um, but I'll get to the kind of you know Shia angle on this. Um, Khomeini and his successor Khamenei. Um, both have pushed for a, a you know this pan-Islamic approach. You want to be an Islamist group that's pushing against you know uh, a secular secular leadership structures, uh, American uh, American uh, backed uh, leaders, uh, you know pushing against other uh, countries, regimes, and whatnot that are not uh, supportive of the Islamic revolution. Uh, we're talking everything from Saudi and Bahrain to you know Israel, uh, which they view as a kind of cancerous. Uh, 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 sell in the Middle East that they want to you know, destroy and, and eventually take over. Um, even within Lebanon, you know, it, even though they enter into uh, the Lebanese government, they're not supportive of said government structure unless it's doing what they want. Um, so, you know, there's a multifold approach to how they want to gain control. Um, but when I say that it was, I guess, pan-Islamic, that means you can support su certain Sunni Islamic groups or Sunni Islamist groups so long as they're generally supporting that Islamist cause for an Islamic state. And this is kind of where it boils over what kind of Islamic state are we talking about here. You know, sometimes there's there are goals that kind of overlap. For instance, Al-Qaeda, which doesn't necessarily adhere, actually doesn't adhere to uh, what Khomeini may have wanted, which was absolutely Layat al um, if they're fighting the Great Satan, as they're often called, uh, meaning the United States or the Shaitan al-Akbar, um, then, hey, you know, maybe we can you know, let them have some transit uh, over Iran and maybe we'll assist them um, uh, for here and there and, and for other, uh, further, I guess, goals. Um, but you know, we'll also make sure that we have some Al-Qaeda uh, Al members that we can use as um, as uh, hostages, if you will, so that they don't attack us, meaning that I'm talking as if I were the Iranians. Uh, so you have kind of cooperation that's on that level. But at the end of the day, what's really being pushed for, yes, is a Shia state, a 12-er Shia state. They believe that that form of Islam is, uh, I guess we could call it the most correct form, the truest form. And essentially, they, you know, if you're adhering to it, then that means that you are 
following the leadership of a, of a Shia clerical leader. Um, so yes, there is that, that Shia section of it. Within Iran itself, um, there is some discrimination against Sunnis who live there, uh, against Sunni religious practice, and of course they push the uh, Shia form quite a bit. So there's a tad bit of uh, hypocrisy when it comes to saying that they're a pan-Islamic movement. But in general, they've tried to execute it in a pan-Islamic form, even when you have Iran pushing for, within Syria, and I, I wrote a monograph about this in 2015, um, you know, pushing for a Shia jihad in Syria, and they're using all of the, the, the tones of, you know, the sectarian tones, they'll still simultaneously push for support within uh, Sunni groups, even with, within Christian organizations. So, uh, we were talking about Heshtal Shabi before. Um, Heshtal Shabi actually has a Christian uh, brigade within it called Qatab Babliyun, uh, which is part of the Harakat Babliyun, or the Babylon movement, or the Babylon brigades. The best reggae band ever. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the only one to have cracked that joke. Yeah, I know. I stole it. I, I can. I, I've totally cracked that joke before, but I'm not going to say that you stole it from me. <laughs> I probably stole it from somebody else. But um, I mean, we have a group like that. That's under Iranian control, mind you. That's a Christian group. That's a Christian group that pushes for certain Christian nationalist identity, while simultaneously also pushing for foreign policy goals and also Iraq policy goals that are held by the Iranians. So the Iranians, uh, it's not as if they just operate within the wavelength of, no, we just recruit Shia, no, we just want you know Shia support. Uh, they're kind of doing a full board press when it comes to different sects and also how they, they wish to push their their end ideological goals. Right. And and tell me if I'm just misunderstanding this, but I still don't quite get why this much Iranian influence through the militias ended up all over Iraq. Well, it's, it, it's this decades-long course that they've attempted to, to push through military activities. So they just slowly started moving in over years, or not even moving in, but taking control of groups or whatever. Yes. I mean, so that it's been decades, decades long. Um, not just not just due to the fight against Saddam Hussein during the Iran-Iraq War, and then also afterwards when there were different Shia rebellions which occurred, uh, or even you know in the aftermath of the 1992-1991 Gulf War, um, but also even the American when the American-led invasion and kind of coalition occupation of Iraq was there, uh, then that provided more opportunities. Now that Saddam Hussein, who was you know a totalitarian dictator and had a security apparatus which would crack down on anyone. Uh, supporting uh, the Iranians or supporting kind of a Shia Islamist goal uh, within the country. Um, now that there were those bounds were kind of removed, well, the Iranians saw that as total opportunity. Uh, they also saw the American occupation as, as another opportunity because it pushes their narrative of the evil imperialist Americans and Brits, uh, you know, who are taking over Iraq. And guess what? Guess who's fighting that occupation? The true Islamic resistance, as they call many of their groups, you know, al-Muqawm al-Islami, um, so when they able to push that, hey, you know, we can pull in more members from different camps and, and who are loyal to different individuals, but hey, guess what? They're now loyal to us. Um, so it's been that slow process, but it's not just a military process. It's also the political one as well. Um, where these guys are smarter and more long-term in terms of thinking when compared to, let's say, groups like the Islamic State. The Islamic State, what? I mean, they're just saying, well, we're going to roll into an area and we're going to declare our caliphate. Um, these guys are, are, are very patient builders of what they eventually want through the electoral process, through uh, 
developing different social apparatuses. And I, and I know, you know, you get a lot of like master's students and, and PhD students who, who love to harp on that. And, and it shows development and how they're really changing as an organization and how they're really just trying to get involved with the people. And they totally delivered milk to these people in Ain Etta in, in Lebanon. So that must mean Hezbollah's moderating. That's not really how it works. I mean, they're trying to build not just uh, you know uh, not just trying to control the legitimate levers of state that are recognized by uh, international actors, but they're also building their states within a state where the social networks are kind of revolving around them. Where you have to be loyal to that apparatus in order to get what you want, uh, and also you know build yourself up commercially. Um, you know, if you want to get into business, hey, it's a it's a, a great deal to to work with Hezbollah, or it's a it's a good deal to work with butter organization. Uh, in butter's context, um, they uh, you know control the Ministry of Interior. Well, that's quite the position to have, especially within the security sphere. So guess who gets pulled on on the official government payroll? They're militiamen because they're now in the, their federal police structure that uh, they control. So now you're providing essentially a patronage network uh, for a lot of your guys that are there through official, uh, through official auspices, but also through more unofficial ones. Um, you know, you have Qatab Hezbollah, which has uh, their, their uh, Kashaf al-Imam al-Mahdi, excuse me, Kashaf al-Imam al-Hussein, um, which is their Hussein scouts. Um, and the Hussein scouts, like it's a, think of it like a boy scouting troop, but they're employing people and they're also maintaining kind of a youth wing that's going to build the future uh, Mujahideen and future supporters for the group through that, through that setup. So it's multifold. It, it's, that's how they generally build influence, not just in Iraq, but also in uh, Lebanon and how they're also trying to do it uh, in Syria. It's the same model that they've replicated over and over and over and over again. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean they ha they can use that model everywhere, but they try to use chunks of it which have worked before. If you look at Bahrain, Bahrain um, has a, you know a Sunni monarchy, um, and they have and the Iranians have tried to spark a lot of the uh, Shia outrage uh, that was there in the aftermath of the uh, the failed kind of. Uh, uh, revolution that was in that country um, into violence, but you can't necessarily build a Hezbollah-style organization where they have a social network, a television network, a this, a that, and the other thing, um, when you have to operate more covertly. Uh, however, they've taken chunks out of the, I guess, kind of armed thinking of how Hezbollah works uh, and tried to apply it to different organizations that they've controlled in Bahrain or uh, in eastern Saudi, uh, where there are different Shia groups that they've tried to influence. So you see it kind of on that level too. Yeah, it's 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 very clever way of doing things, the, the long-term thing. And I, I, this is going to sound odd, but it's exactly what Azov Battalion is doing in Ukraine. Now, a lot of people used to say to me, oh, Jake, don't be stupid. You know, Azov is so small, you know, this, this far-right militia. Uh, they're so small, they can't really have any influence. But they're doing what, you know, they're doing exactly what these guys do. And they're doing these small youth camps and, you know, they fought in the war. And now a lot of their fighters are now under the, you know, under the wing of the police or whatever. So, you know, they're slowly moving into the government. Um, but you mentioned Hezbollah there. Um, I think that's a really interesting aspect. How involved is Hezbollah with the uh, the Hashd al-Shabi in Iraq? Well, they, they were quite extensively involved. Uh, there were, I mean, at least 100 advisors. And I say at least 100, and that's that's kind of uh, my lowball guesstimate on how many have been sent over. You've had tons have gone over anyway. Uh, some that have even fought with groups uh, and been killed with them, uh, not just as advisors, but also kind of organizational people who are core force uh, elements to developing militias that were there. Um, saw it in Syria as well. 
Um, but you have to look at Hashd al-Shabi, they emulate a lot of what Hezbollah uh, puts down. You'll see a lot of martyrdom posters that commemorate uh, uh, people who've fallen fighting with Hezbollah, uh, in addition to people who've, who've uh, fought, you know, different Iraqi Shia or different Iraqis who've been killed uh, fighting within Iraq. Um, I think there are over 10, I, I want to say over 10, uh, and this is including uh, mid-level and senior commanders who've been killed, uh, who, uh, you know, who are with Hezbollah, who were killed uh, within Iraq. Uh, so it's not as if it was a, uh, they had no presence there. I mean, and also if you look at Syria, it's a kind of a natural progression of how uh, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah has been spreading its wings. Because you remember, within uh, the groups that are controlled by the Iranians, the uh, Lebanese Hezbollah is kind of first among equals. They are probably the best trained, they're the best experienced, um, they have high respect uh, among uh, a lot of these different groups that the Iranians have been trying to grow. And they also have a high level of respect uh, just within the Shia realm and also within the Islamic world, uh, even though there were certain sectarian issues which were, were you know, quite bad for them because of Syria, uh, they still had the respect there because they had fought and, you know, the narrative that they had developed that they defeated the Israelis, um, you know, both in 2000 when the Israelis pulled out of Lebanon, but then beyond that in 2006, they survived. They survived the onslaught, which essentially they started um, against the Israelis, and the Israeli war machine could not really grind them down. Instead, the Israelis took a high number of casualties. So that's kind of built up off of that. Um, but even before, even before this point, Lebanese Hezbollah was in Iraq, uh, and also assisting different Iraqi groups. Um, if we look back into the 1980s, there were different foreign fighters who came into Iran and were assisting uh, Iraqis who were, would eventually make up uh, Faylak Badr, or the Badr Brigades, or the Badr Corps, which eventually became the Badr Organization, uh, which is now, you know, in control of that, those ministries in, in Iraq and, uh, you know, a very, very powerful political player. Uh, so you've had influence there, but then if you look at when the Americans, uh, the Brits, and other coalition partners were uh, in Iraq, uh, you know, what was Lebanese Hezbollah doing? Well, we actually have a very, very good amount of evidence that they were sending people there to build up different organizations. Uh, take, for instance, Ali Musa Dakduk. Uh, Dakduk was captured by you know, the Americans, uh, eventually put in prison, um, but it demonstrated through his diaries and whatnot that he was assisting groups like Qatab Hezbollah and especially Asayib Ahmed Haq um, in developing how their armed apparatus would work, the military training that went into it, some of the political education that went into it, the, the ideological education, all of these facets go in there. And when you have somebody who, you know, when you have people who are uh, native Arabic speakers, a lot of the Iranians are criticized because their Arabic was not so good. And it's even funnier given, you know, the, the, in, in Arabic, the Iraqis, are, they're kind of considered to have a very, very masculine uh, dialect. Whereas the Lebanese, it's, it's not considered as masculine, it's considered kind of cute. <laughs> and you have these Lebanese guys coming in who actually can transmit information and, and fight alongside these guys in a better form because of the respect that's there and nobody's really making fun of their accent but they're making fun of their Iranian you know overall controllers <laughs> so instead the Iranians are like no 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 we'll pair them up with Lebanese Hezbollah guys because these guys are truly experienced they speak the language aren't going to get made fun of there's not going to be confusion there like when they we would send these Iraqis out to uh, the Iranian training camps um, we'll have them operate through them as kind of an interlocutor of sorts um, so you've had that kind of relationship that's been there for many, many years. Um, I think we should probably go over what they do. You know, I should have probably brought this up uh, before, but w what exactly are the Hashtal Shabi doing? Because 
I certainly remember following one group years ago. I was following what they were doing on Instagram. And yeah, they were, they were fighting ISIS, but they were cutting everybody's heads off. They were, you know, filming executions. They were committing a lot of war crimes. You know what I mean? Um, so, so what exactly is the main role of Hashd al-Shabi? And also, I think maybe you can answer how well received are they? Because certainly I don't know anyone who speaks very highly of them, you know, other than perhaps, you know, fighters linked to them. Of course. Uh, I mean, technically the end goal, the initial end goal was a popular mobilization of different factions, different groups uh, that would defeat the Islamic State, uh, give security support to the, the Iraqi state uh, in doing so, you know, because here they, these are militias that are being formed and uh, they need to support kind of the legitimate state uh, arm. Um, and now, as the Islamic State's been pushed back, despite the fact that they're launching a pretty effective, they're going back to their old strategy of launching a very effective uh, insurgency uh, against the Iraqi state and against the Iraqi security apparatus, um, the Hashd al-Shabi has kind of remained to say, well, you know, the Islamic State really isn't fully defeated, um, but you know, and they've kind of thrown this in there every once in a while, and, and some analysts will kind of ignore it and just say, yeah, you know, they can, they can only do so much. But one part of them will say, oh, you know, um, eventually when we kind of have to fight the Israelis or we have to fight a foreign occupation, we're there too. We can always mobilize because we're experienced. Interesting how that M, cough, cough, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, uh, coincides with a lot of Iranian goals in the region. Because um, remember, they, they're, a lot of them are falling under that, uh, that level of control. Um, so they've, they've pushed that. You've had a lot of groups which are, are I guess, members, they're, they are... Uh, within the Hashd al-Shabi control system, but they're still sending people to Syria, and the narrative they've presented is, one, we're doing shrine defense, and two, uh, we're trying to stop the Islamic State and other Sunni extremists from pouring over the border again into Iraq. Uh, they've also said that they do border security. Uh, they've also continued on to say, hey, we can also do certain social services, uh, like rebuilding roads and rebuilding other um, houses, or putting up houses for the families of martyrs. You know, remember there's this whole uh, strategy uh, that Khomeini actually termed called Jihad wal binna uh, so that's kind of uh, the jihad in construction, the, um, the struggle for construction, where they're actually following that model and saying, well, hey, we can build up certain social networks and we can help certain people out, we can help uh, different tribes that are out in Anbar and deliver them water and food, uh, and we can do the same thing for people who are not doing so well in Shia areas. They've tried to pull that kind of line. But think of them, they're a parallel security apparatus, for all intents and purposes, a parallel security apparatus. And what the Iraqi state, and when I say the Iraqi state, I'm meaning people who are not too keen on further uh, Iranian influence, even though, well, if we're being honest here, the Iraqi state has a ton of people who are pushing Iranian influence uh, that are within it. Um, you know, they're, like the old line from the old Prime Minister Abadi was put them under the army's control because the army was considered to be a hell of a lot more nationalistic uh, and, uh, I guess, in opposition to uh, a lot of this Iranian influence. So they've tried to say, hey, we can just roll them under that apparatus and that will give the Iraqi state more control. Um, I'm quite skeptical when, that's been, when that line has been pushed. 
because we can clearly see that these groups still are rather independent and will often play different games with Baghdad and say, oh no, no, we've totally pulled out of that area and see it's just local people, who local uh, groups that are under Heshtal Shabi that are controlling X zone. Meanwhile, those groups get their funding and get their training and get their support from, uh, well, Iranian-controlled organizations, which means it traces back to Tehran again. You know, it's not as if th there's a real huge change here. Right, they're, they're kind of acting like a Trojan horse, but out in the open. Correct, correct. That just, it just seems so stupid. Like, how stupid does Iraq have to be? Surely they realize this, or, or I don't know, what's, what's going on? Well, there, there's only so much, I mean, I... I try to take a little bit more of, a, of an empathetic view when it comes to it because, I, I, you know, if you're analyzing something, you have to look at all sides of it. Um, if you have a, a, I mean, if you see how their narrative was formed initially, it was, who's defending Baghdad? It, well, a lot of these militias turned out and were the groups that pushed back the Islamic State, including uh, the group that I think that you're mentioning was Qatab al-Imam Ali. Um, and that's another Iranian-controlled Sadrist splinter group. Yes, yes, they, they were the ones really documenting their war crimes, I think. Oh, yeah, and they knew how to push it for propaganda purposes. I mean, they were, they were quite effective with it. Uh, I mean, they were lighting guys on fire and putting them over, over different pits and whatnot and filming it, and you'd have people doing the thumbs up next to it. Look, they understood how to strike a certain chord within... Uh, you know, w within many Iraqis who who sought revenge, uh, they sought vengeance for what the Islamic State was doing, and what the Islamic State was doing was, and they, what they're still doing is absolutely horrific and awful. Um, and they're saying, hey, you know, they, they presented themselves as, we are Iraqis who are picking ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's not as if, you know, different Iraqis were going out and seeing, you know, a bunch of different dudes marching down the streets in black pajamas with rifles. It's not like they're saying, hey, that's a Khomeinist group, and they're pushing absolute wilayat al-Faqih. And this is really a, a lever of Iranian control within the country. Um, you had a lot of Iraqis who joined these organizations because they could. It's not as if they could get in and join the Iraqi army. Uh, because the Iraqi army often had higher standards, uh, and they still wanted to defend their country because they felt that there was a religious obligation to do so. Now, I, I did want to return back to this this religious obligation bit because it's important with understanding how al hashtal Shabi's um, legitimacy is sold, especially within Western circles. Uh, and you'll see this in a lot of news articles um, that it was formed following uh, following Sistani's fatwa. Um, that's, and I, I mentioned this before, it's not necessarily true. Um, there were already different, uh, you know, Iranian-backed uh, clerics who had been saying, you know, you need to arm up, you need to start different popular mobilization groups. If you look at Qatab Hezbollah, they were already forming their own popular mobilization organizations within Iraq many months before uh, the whole uh, Heshtal Shabi was formed. Um, and Sistani specifically in his fatwa said you have to join state groups. He was talking specifically about state-controlled organizations like the army, like the federal police, like different other, uh, different other groups that had more uh, control by Baghdad. So what do you think the, the move was that was executed by uh, people like the, the former prime minister before Abadi, who was Nouri al-Maliki, uh, who is now essentially Iranian-controlled, um, now, what do you think he did? Well, then you make it a state apparatus. Then you make the militias a state apparatus. But Sistani was not a keen supporter, nor were, nor were the people supporting him. Uh, they were not very, very supportive of this whole militiaization process. And you can see this by the formation of their own groups. I mean, you'd think, well, 
does that not demonstrate that the whole militia thing works? Um, a lot of this was done not just to fight the Islamic State and, and kind of provide security on his terms, but you could also look at it as a form of uh, a counterbalance to this extreme power that the Iranian-backed groups were gaining uh, within Hashtal Shabi, and how they also, how uh, Sistani also wanted to kind of exert his own control. When you look at Muqtada Sadr uh, and what he did, I mean, he kind of called his own forces out, and what he would do is, he'd make sure to weed out any potential splinters. He tried to invite people in who had left his group before and you know, would quote-unquote forgive them uh, after, after, again, quote-unquote re-education um, and would kind of show that you know, he could be forgiving and, and, and launch his own operation. Um, and that's essentially what he did. But in many respects, a lot of these parades that were done uh, early on in the conflict were not just signals to the Islamic State, but they were, they were intra-Shia uh, intra-Iraqi Shia, uh, I guess, signal saying, hey, you know, Iran, don't try and, and grab too much power. We see what you're doing here, and we can exert our own levels of influence uh, either within al-Hashd al-Shabi or quasi-independently as our own organizations, as Sadr did, um, and say, no, 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 no. we're going to control different zones and also don't mess with us. Well, the situation with the Kurds interests me because I remember when I was, I was there in 2015, and even then, Peshmerga was saying, like, this fight against ISIS is nothing. Like, the real fight is going to be against um, the PMU, the Shia militias, as they called them, the Hashtal Shabi. And then we saw, you know, even in Kirkuk, before Kirkuk was lost, um, like, two years before that, there were even clashes. There were big kind of blast walls put up. And then we know that, you know, Hashtal Shabi were fighting the Peshmerga there in Kirkuk. Um, what do you think of that? Do you think that's going to carry on happening? Because certainly it hasn't quite blown up the way a lot of you know people in the Kurdish area said it would, but it doesn't doesn't look good. No, I mean I think the tensions are there, particularly from the Iranian-backed groups that uh, you know have no love for many of the Kurdish organizations because they don't exert you know full control over them. Um, I mean you look at how much uh, groups like Asaibah al-Haq or uh, Badr or you know, Kataba's Bullah, and I'm just listing three of the major ones. There, there are tons of different organizations that the Iranians control. But it's interesting how their propaganda apparatuses would come out almost simultaneously to criticize Masoud Barzani uh, and the Kurdish Democratic Party because they really don't like him. Um, but, I mean, you have that tension that's, that's there. It's not just a political tension within the parliament, and that's there as well. It's also the military tension. It's also who's controlling, uh, sometimes uh, who has more influence over different um, ethnic groups. Uh, you know, for instance, like within, uh, within the Azidi community, you see different... Uh, uh, struggles uh, with the Kurds, and, it, and remember, I mean, I, whenever we say the Kurds, this is a whole other thing. It's like saying the Shia. Uh, <laughs> there's no unified body here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's it's a pet hate of mine actually, and I just did it. But yeah, <laughs> at least the Kurds in northern Iraq is what I meant this time. Well, the Kur Kurds in northern Iraq. I mean, there are different levels of influence that Iran can exert. Uh, not just using its own arms, you know, using the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or, you know, firing rockets at different uh, Kurdish groups uh, or, or doing stuff like that, but also through the Shia militias that they control that are also in parliament that can also block different political things that different Kurdish groups want. I mean, yeah, the tensions are still there. It depends on how, uh, I guess, uh, quote-unquote uppity uh, uh, the Kurds wish to get uh, in the minds of the Iranians. I mean, there's a whole regional dynamic to this, too, where, you know, you're, you have... It's it's the 3D chess on 17 different boards kind of thing, you know, where you have the Turks who have uh, an issue with the Kurds. You have 
intra-Kurdish uh, difficulties, like let's say between the PKK and the uh, KDP, or the KDP and the PUK, uh, or KDPI and, and, and what they're doing within Iran and how that influences what's going on in Iraq because they have people in Iraq. Um, you have a lot of the, these different multifaceted conflicts that are going on. Um, and of course, you know, the Shia militias and Heshtal Shabi definitely factor into them. But again, I mean, just as the different factions have, uh, I guess we could say, uh, different, uh, different takes on how to deal with the Kurds, uh, or excuse me, how to deal with each other, they have different takes on how to deal with the Kurds. And you'll see uh, people like Amr al-Hakim, who shed his, his militia apparatus. Um, he kind of got rid of his, his overarching wing that he controlled, like within uh, his group, the Islam, uh, excuse me, uh, ISKI, uh, Islamic Supreme Council for Iraq. He eventually left and created his a new group uh, and said, shed the militia apparatus. But he was going off and, and meeting with people like Barzani uh, and meeting with KDP and meeting with the PUK and kind of taking his own side there. Uh, and when he still had the ISKI militia, which is called Saray al-Ashura, um, or Saray al-Ashura, um, you know, that group wasn't as vocal um, against the Kurds until he eventually left. <laughs> and when he left, all of a sudden, because the Iranian influence was the only thing that was left, um, then guess what they piped up about? The Kurds again, because it fit the narrative. But I mean, I'm sorry to like dive down that hole, but you know, it's a very, very, and I, I always hate when people say this, it's very, very complex. Oh yeah, everything is complex. If you boil it down, it makes sense. But you know, it's multifaceted. Speaking about the Kurdish groups, one thing that kind of puzzled me a bit, or at least I was a bit shocked by, was when uh, people were saying that YBS, the, um, the the Sinjar resistance units, the basically PKK-affiliated group that pretty much saved Sinjar from the ISIS invasion because, you know, as we know, certain, certain groups ran away. Um, but then, you know, recently they've kind of been aligned with the Hashtal Shabi, I heard, you know. I, I, what's going on there, do you know? I do. Actually, it's, it's interesting that you asked that because I was writing something about it. Um, I'm actually, I've been writing something about it for the past couple months because it's just been a little side fascination. Um, so eventually something will, will come out. You know, as, as an analyst, we always say, I'm having something come out soon and nine months later, then eventually it comes out. <laughs> because, you know, uh, and I especially am a weirdo when it comes to that, but it's been something that I've been looking at for a while. Um, they actually, what happened is there's competition for uh, control over the Azidis. Uh, and also the Yazidis playing their own game, uh, where, uh, you know, you have a lot of Yazidis who blame uh, different Kurdish Peshmerga units for not defending them quite properly. Uh, and this especially goes to the KDP, where they've criticized them for that, for, for pulling out too early and, you know, for not giving them their own uh, autonomy of sorts or their own identity issues that they've had with Kurdish nationalism. Uh, I mean, you have all these different little things that are kind of bouncing around. And then eventually you have the Iranians who will come in and say, hey, we can, we can recruit from this camp, form it as a pressure uh, system, not just against, um, you know, let's say the KDP, but we can also do it against, you know, YPG, the PKK, and a lot of these other Kurdish groups that we might have issues with and kind of do have issues with in Syria. Um, let's see what we can do. How can we build that influence within this sub-network of a sub-network of a sub-network of, of different things? So, 
they actually formed a different, uh, the, the group that they have is loyal technically to the Butter organization, uh, the Yazidis that they've pulled in, uh, and they offer them very nice salaries, good training. Um, you know, they've, they've kind of taken a more hands-off approach in many respects while still maintaining kind of online propaganda that fits within the Iranian narrative. Um, and I mean, essentially what they have is anywhere from, you know, 250 to around 1,000 uh, Yazidis that they've been able to pull under the Hashtal Shabi ranks. And so the way the Yazidis look at this as, oh, well, this, is, this can be a good balance. A good balance because we will maintain our connections with, um, you know, the kind of PKK-associated groups that are, are now more strong in uh, Syria, in uh, uh, northeastern Syria. Um, and then we can also balance that off of, let's say, the KDP, where we also have some influence and we also have our own unit there. And we can also balance the two off using Heshel Shabi, which is generally looked at as, you know, the Iranian-backed or the Iranian-controlled um, elements that are, are within the Iraqi system and the Iraqi Shia. So you also have that dynamic that's playing into it as well. And we can see how well that works out and also, you know, playing our own game of chess, you know, who gives us the most support because guess what? We still have to deal with uh, groups like the Islamic State and you know, that's not going anywhere anytime soon. And, you know, we as Azidis have experienced uh, genocide and sex slavery and all sorts of, you know, all varieties of awful things. So why not? You know, this is how the, the region is and this is how we're going to work in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I dare say the YBS are using the Hashtal Shabi in the same way, though. You know, like you said, I mean, everybody knows YBS is loyal pretty much only to the PKK, you know, and well, loyal to um, Sinjar. But you know what I mean? They're, they're kind of loyal to the PKK. So I guess I guess there's a bit of uh, to and fro going there. Yes, definitely. And, you know, don't think the Iranians aren't looking, this, uh, looking at this as another way that they can, you know, build influence within another section and, and counter different groups that they may or may not have problems with or, you know, already have problems with. Um, they're, I mean, they're thinking three steps ahead just as the PKK is and just as the KDP is and just as the Yazidis are. And they kind of have to do this. It's, it's out of, I don't want to completely say it's out of necessity, but in many respects it is. Uh, in other respects, it's because this is the new political environment and you know, often you look to, you know, look to back the, the strongest horse in the race. And if you don't know which is the strongest horse and, and who's going to be more powerful now or later on, then, hey, we'll back three horses. Why not? That'll, or we'll back five horses or whatever. Uh, we'll just kind of work that way. And that, that appears to me how um, this has been, been executed. I guess it's impossible to properly quantify, but do we have any idea of how many fighters are under the umbrella of Hashtal Shabi. So the they've thrown out this number's been thrown out quite a bit that says it's around a hundred thousand. Then you'll see other numbers that say it's eighty thousand. Um, I mean, a lot of these fighters don't necessarily go up to the front and do any fighting. And this is this has been the case even in the Iraqi army, where you'll have a lot of people just collecting salaries, or even in the federal police or in different other security apparatuses, where they're just people who are just sitting on their ass collecting a paycheck. And they get in because of the patronage network or because their family members, you know, gave them the wasta or the clout and connections to get in. Uh, so you do have a lot of that that's going on. Um, 
there's also been a lot of, of I guess, pressure from different Iraqi elements. I mean, I, I mentioned uh, Sayyid Amr al-Hakim. Um, he actually wanted to cut back on the numbers of salaried Heshtal Shabi members, uh, and he he kind of threw this out as his push against corruption. It was also a push, you know, a push back to the Iranians, meaning pushing them back. Um, you know, I think he wanted to cut it down, you know, cut another 30,000 salaries out of there. Um, but it's, it's a very, very hard number to calculate. And with the groups, I mean, just because they'll list themselves as a, as a battalion or a brigade or an army or a corps or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean they have that size uh, or in, in terms of numbers that matches along with, you know, what they've declared their name as. Um, hell, some of the brigades within Heshtal Shabi aren't even brigade-sized. Um, but they're trying to shape that up a little bit more. But I mean, I would say anywhere from fifty to eighty thousand is a, a relatively, you know, conservative to eh, quasi-liberal, you know, kind of estimate in terms of uh, how large the numbers are. And I think that that remains true today. But in terms of how many are deployed, obviously it's not that many. Uh, we're talking in the tens of thousands. But not, you know, we're not talking about like 100,000 guys on the front line. That's definitely not how it's working. We've seen Hashtal Shabi, like I mentioned earlier, we saw them fighting in Kirkuk. More recently, we've seen them shooting unarmed protesters in Basra. Do you think there's going to be more violent clashes between essentially the people of Iraq and Hashtal Shabi? Or I, I don't know, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Once again, funny you mention this because I was writing something about it for the past couple of weeks. <laughs> so, and I initially I was going to release it uh, back when you know uh, Institute for the Study of War. Uh, my uh, my friend Jennifer Caffarella, uh, friend and colleague Jennifer Caffarella, actually you know published something that came out that said the the Iraqi civil war is is going to begin. I'm a little bit more skeptical on that. I think you know Iraq hits these 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 low burn points where there's assassinations, there's some violence. Sometimes it looks like it's really just it, it's getting bad, uh, especially because of other things that are going on, and just eventually it, it looks like it's all, the dam is going to break. Um, but then they kind of pull themselves back in a way. But you still have covert assassinations and different stuff blowing up here and there. Um, so it wouldn't shock me if there's still tension that's there. I mean, remember, the government is still technically being built as we speak. There are ministries that are still being handed out to different factions, and those factions are under different controls uh, in our, and controlled by different people uh, in different countries. So... You know, when you when you look at it, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't shock me if the tensions are still going on. And in fact, many of the tensions are still going on well into October um, and well into late September. So there are assassinations, counter-assassinations, kind of the low-burn conflicts. Uh, and when you see things really starting to boil over, um, yeah, I mean, you see different deployments that occur. Um, but, I mean, I, I think a lot of this has been allowed to just kind of simmer, and it stays at this low simmer, and occasionally you'll get a really big bubble that'll pop up, but it's not really, you know, the water boiling over and, you know, getting the rest of the stove wet. Um, I don't really think we're at that point yet. I think that, you know, is there the possibility that it may happen? Yeah, but I think for the most part, Iraq has dealt with uh, many, many years of conflict, and many, many years of, you know, economic uh, problems, and you've had now this service problem that's down in Basra, you now have, you know, other ethnic tensions, you have religious tensions. Uh, I think for the most part, it's kind of like looking at Lebanon. Everybody was trying to call out when the next civil war in Lebanon was going to break out, and I remember all the the talking heads would say, the civil war is going to happen now, and, and they'd look at 2008 with what happened where Lebanese Hezbollah 
stormed into West Beirut and, you know, essentially crushed their, their political opposition and, and crushed any, any hopes of their, uh, their uh, attempts to build kind of, uh, kind of military apparatuses to counter Lebanese Hezbollah very quickly, mind you, um, even though they didn't do so well in the, the Druze-controlled Shuf area. Um, but that's another story. Um, but everybody said this is going to boil down into a gigantic civil war within Lebanon. This is what's going to happen. And then meanwhile, it was just kind of a blip on the radar. How many people even remember what happened in May of 2008? Um, I mean, it obviously had cascading effects within Lebanon and, and you know, a huge amount of different effects uh, within the region now that we can look at, but it was not the humongous civil war blow-up that was the equivalent to the 15-year civil war uh, that affected the country. And, and mind you, even the civil war then, when we describe it, um, it had its kind of ebbs and flows, where there were different conflicts that developed within a larger conflict within a larger conflict. Kind of like what how uh, kind of like how Syria looks. Kind of like how you know there are certain other issues in Iraq. And I think many Iraqis, like many Lebanese, were sick of all of that. You know, they will take stability and they will look at who the strongest player is, and they'll kind of play different games within you know that that setup and just kind of deal with it. Right, so if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen, and there's a strong likelihood that people like myself, people like you, uh, and other, you know, other analysts and journalists might not necessarily see it coming, and it might just take us off guard. Um, but, I mean, I, I kind of take a, a rather hands-off approach. I don't really like the, the kind of hysterics that often go into this, and, uh, you know, what happens, happens. No, me either. <laughs> me either. Um, I think we got it, man. I think we got it. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I think you nailed it all. I mean, I hope I got pretty much everything out there and it's understandable and not in academies. No, no, not at all. Look, look, if I understood it, other people are going to understand it. Trust me. All right. Well, hey, works for me. Yeah. And where can people get hold of you? Where can they follow your work? So, um, my, I mean, my work, I'm, I'm a SORAF fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. So on my bio page there, you'll see a lot of the stuff that I'll produce for the Institute that will uh, go up. Um, I've written a lot for foreign policy. I've written a lot of different publications. Often I'll put my stuff up on Twitter. So it's at Philip Smythe and it's S-M-Y-T-H. And Philip was with two L's. It's probably the waspiest name you'll ever come across. Um, so, you know, it's generally out there. And usually I'll, I will get back to when people have questions or criticisms or whatever else. I'm, I'm pretty hands-on. At least I try to be a pretty hands-on person unless I'm in a really shitty mood. Hey, as far as analysts go, you're one of my favorites. And I hate most analysts. So definitely worth a follow. Yeah, I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, mate. Thank you very much. So that was Philip Smythe talking about the dangerous umbrella of the Hasht al-Shabi or PMU or PMF or Shia militias, uh, whatever you want to call them. Please do consider supporting Popular Front at patreon.com slash popularfront. There's loads there. We're doing about two or three bonus episodes a month at the moment, actually, kind of churning them out. So loads there um, for the price of basically a shit coffee a month. You know, why not support independent conflict journalism? patreon.com slash popular front special thanks to patrick bronte alium leroy axel iverson cedar fenn chad walker cody bergerud dan dan dunham diana gorvanek emily molly fletcher tate james from the discord uh joanne stocker lawrence abrams lh margaret bowling peter mccormack Ryan Sandercock, Stephen Henderson, Teddy, Zachary Hinch, and 
Casey Francis. And also thanks very much to Low Res Wonderbread. They help us out quite a lot with graphics and stuff like that. They're definitely friends of Popular Front. They do comedy, all sorts of stuff. These weird kind of abstract films, pretty good. I like them. Go to lowres.live, check them out. And make sure you subscribe to the Popular Front YouTube. I'm planning on going away soon, doing a few different things. Possibly Ukraine, not too sure, going to figure it out. But uh, that is youtube.com slash popular front please subscribe hit the bell all of that follow us on instagram there's a lot going on there now basically all the visual stuff kind of goes there first so that is instagram.com slash popular dot front uh twitter follow me that's jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n or the popular front twitter which is at popular front co which is the same as the site, popularfront.co. That's kind of the landing page. Um, When the Patreon hits a certain level, I'm going to turn it into a proper website with articles, all that stuff. Uh, But right now, I can't really afford it, to be honest. There's a lot of money, you know, just keeping all this going. As I said at the start, do check out the Popular Front shop. We had support patches, which were sold out in 12 hours. They're going to be coming back soon. We've got a few T-shirts left as well. I think there's like four or five left. So if you want one, get it quick. Go to go to popularfront.bigcartel.com. Music in this episode. The intro was by the synthwave artist Home, and the outro was by Son of Old. Go to his SoundCloud at soundcloud.com/son dash of dash old he makes loads of really cool beats he basically uses really shit trial version of fruity loops that he's been using as long as i've known him which have been about 10 years and he can't save any of his beats so he basically has to make them and export them the same day um i think that's quite cool it makes for a really kind of raw sound so yeah definitely check him out son of old soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old اسمع للجبهة شعبية اسمع للجبهة شعبية